What a blessing to be together. And Let's start with prayer. That's a good place to start. Dear Father, we, we need to get this right, this issue that we're, that we're looking at this morning. But what you have to say on this matter completely flies in the face of every human expectation. And so we need your spirit to do your good work in our hearts through your living and active word. We come to you in, uh, in utter dependence this morning, looking to you to do that very thing, asking for that gracious work of your spirit in us through your word. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We decided to go ahead and start with uh, preaching, teaching back in the building, even though we're kind of in the, in the middle of a short series. And I, I think it worked out well. This is a message that I uh, have had on my heart for more years than I can count. And there are parts of it that, that won't be anything new to you, but, but I think there are parts of it that I hope will be a challenge. It's certainly been a challenge to me. Leadership training is a, is a really big industry in this country, uh, including in the evangelical church. Sometimes it's, it's, uh, very illuminating if you go on Google and you search for certain phrases, especially contrasting phrases, and you look at the difference in the number of hits that you get. I went on Google early this week and I put, in quotes, I put the phrase, books on leadership. And it returned about 573,000 results. Then I searched on the phrase books on servanthood, in quotes. It returned, it returned 602 results, and once it filtered out duplications, it was exactly 19. Wow. 573,019. It seems apparent that people like leading more than they like serving, right? My title this morning is Submission and Headship for Mere Agents. Submission and headship for mere agents. And the subtitle is, You Don't Become a Leader by Leading. One of the things that caught my attention as I was preparing for this series on human agency is how consistently Christian sermons and writings on the biblical theme of submission and headship put those two words in the other sequence, headship and submission. And I've been using that same sequence, headship and submission, for all the years that I've had anything to do with teaching the Bible. But this week, God uh, God changed that, uh, in my case. This is a really big deal in the Bible, this theme. And if we want to rightly handle the word of truth, we wouldn't, for instance, say that when God made human beings, He created them female and male, would we? If you strip down the words to the barest meaning, that would be accurate, but it would be a really poor representation of God's work of creation of human beings, would it not? Because it could very easily create a mistaken notion in the minds of those who are not familiar with the biblical account that God created the woman first, or that the woman had authority over the man. Anyone who assumed either of those things would be flipping an indispensable truth of Scripture right on its head. And the issue that we're talking about this morning is no less indispensable. That's why I changed that little phrase in my message title from headship and submission to submission and headship. Last week I cited some key verses from 
a few chapters in the New Testament that focus very directly on this issue. And those chapters were Ephesians 5 and 6 and Colossians 3 and 4. The progression in those passages with rigorous consistency starts with God's instructions to the person who is in the subservient or submitted role, and then if the passage even addresses the one in the headship role, it puts that one second. In Ephesians 5, wives are addressed before husbands, children are addressed before parents, and slaves are addressed before masters. That exact same pattern bears out in Colossians chapters 3 and 4. In the very same way, in 1 Peter chapters 2 and 3, Peter first instructs every believer to humbly and willingly submit to every governing authority that God has placed over us. And then he instructs slaves to humbly and willingly submit to their masters, even bad ones. And then he instructs wives to humbly and willingly submit to their husbands, even bad ones. And only after all that teaching about submission does Peter come around to just one single verse addressed to husbands, to commanding them to live with their wives in an understanding manner, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. And Peter's template and perfect standard in all of those instructions about willing, humble, uncomplaining submission, even submission to those who exercise authority very badly, his template is Jesus. You and I are called to do as Jesus did for the same reason, essentially, that Jesus did it. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. For you, this is, by the way, this is right after he told slaves to submit even to abusive and tyrannical masters. He says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And that's right from Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. The outcome that our Lord purposed to bring about through his own willing submission to unjust authorities on earth to the point of death was so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. His purpose was a saving, redeeming purpose, the purpose of his submission. You and I cannot accomplish what Jesus accomplished through his willing submission to unjust authorities. His submission to the point of death produced our reconciliation with God, our eternal salvation, and changed our nature from unrighteous to righteous. I can't do that for anyone, and neither can you. 
but the outcome that God purposes to bring about through our willing, humble submission to the authorities that He has placed over us as imitators of our Master is also a saving outcome. In 1 Peter 2, verse 12, the verse that's, that is immediately before Peter launches into all this teaching about submission, Peter says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying the people that are slandering you now, God is going to work in the lives of some of those people so that when He comes back on Judgment Day, they will glorify Him. Now, you might say that there are those who glorify Him in their in condemnation, and I believe that's true. But on the basis of this verse and some others, I believe that what Peter is saying is God's purpose in your submission is salvific. It's, it's to save. Christ's godly submission brought salvation to us, and our godly submission will be an instrument through which God saves others. And that makes our willing, humble, uncomplaining submission to the authorities that God places over us exceedingly important. In fact, strategic to the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth. The call to godly submission and servanthood was foundational to our Lord's preparation of His disciples. And in the passages uh, that you saw in the bulletin, one of those was Matthew chapter 20. As Jesus and His disciples made their way to Jerusalem for what would be the last time, the time that He would be crucified and raised from the dead, we find this amazing conversation recorded in Matthew 20, verses 20 to 27. It says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, some of you may have mothers like this, I don't know, but then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making requests of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, oh, nothing, nothing much. No, that's not what she said. She, <laughs> she, she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine, James and John, may sit one on your right and one on your left. Is she bold or what? Considering who Jesus is, the mother of James and John just asked the Lord of the universe to make her two sons to put them in the most exalted position of any created human being. Position one and position two. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. And man, she didn't. And they didn't. And he actually, he didn't address his response to her. He addressed it to the men. You do not know what you are asking. And then he said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, yeah. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, that is not mine to give. And, and beloved, when we get to the last message in this, in this series on the perfect agency of Christ, we're going to see why that is true and, and why that is so very important for us in following the example of Christ. And then he says, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. 
And hearing this, the ten others became indignant with the two, the two that presented this request. It's like, what's the matter with you guys? When Jesus responded to the request posed to him, again, he responded to them, to James and John, and the first part of his response was, you do not know what you're asking. Now we might, if we didn't read any further, we might think that Jesus was saying that, uh, the places of honor their mother requested for them were greater than any men, any human being would ever be able to, to hold. But, but that's actually not what he was saying. Uh, in Luke chapter 22, verses 29 to 30, Jesus said to his disciples, You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus wasn't saying that those who follow him will not ever be exalted. What he was saying, though, is that there's a cup they have to drink before that. Instead of that, that silver chalice of a king, there's another cup they have to drink before that. He said, my cup you will drink, but it's a very different cup. It's the cup that Jesus came to drink the first time he came from heaven to earth, a cup of suffering and death as the lowliest of all servants and as the servant of all. Jesus made it clear to his disciples that they would indeed share what was his. And that meant that before they could share in his glory, they would certainly share in his humiliation, suffering, and death as servants of all. As many have pointed out in the past, truly following Jesus in this mortal life is a race to last place. It's a race to last place. And if, if that's not counterintuitive, if that doesn't turn the kingdom of this world right side up, what does? Jesus went on in the next verses of Matthew 20 to speak again. He's, he's now speaking to all of his disciples and he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them. And then he said, it is not this way among you. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you will be, shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, uh, of course, never hesitated to rain on the disciples' parade when they got things wrong. And here they got things badly wrong. They had turned the kingdom of God upside down. So Jesus flipped it right side up for them. And his words, it is not this way among you, are profoundly important. The world's approach to leadership has no place whatsoever in the family of God. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus drove this revolutionary truth home even further. Speaking to the multitudes and to the disciples, he publicly shamed the Pharisees who were the religious elite, the rulers of the, the Jewish faith in his day. And he said of those leaders, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. They love respectful greeting in the marketplaces and they love being called rabbi. By men. But do not 
He didn't, didn't say don't call them rabbi. He says do not be called rabbi. For one is your teacher and you are all brothers. There's this, by the way, there's a fascinating statement in 1 John chapter 2. It says you have no need of teachers because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You know what that means? That means I'm dispensable. I'm a luxury. I know that, guys. He says, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called, get this, do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's one of the most reliable principles in all of Scripture. Whoever, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Are we paying attention here, guys? Am I paying attention here? Do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, Christ. Now this doesn't mean, by the way, that no one is to teach and no one is to lead. Or that no one is to aspire to do either of those things. First Timothy 3 verse 1, Paul said to Timothy, it's a trustworthy statement if a man aspires to the office of elder, of overseer. It's a fine work that he desires to do. What makes it a fine work? What makes it desirable? Well, there is a very, very big difference between aspiring to be used as an agent of God in a teaching or leadership role, headship role, and aspiring to be called head. Big difference between those two things. The godly motive for desiring to be in a position that places you in authority over others on God's behalf is a servant motive. Being an elder or a deacon or a boss or a husband or a city councilman or a president or a mom opens countless opportunities to serve people as an agent of Christ and as a servant of both God and men. As we proceed this morning, I want to look at this matter of submission and headship from both of those two perspectives, submission and headship. And I want to recognize that in every case, those who fulfill either role do so as imperfect agents of God. Only Christ does either perfectly. We all do so as imperfect agents of God. Now, I'm start with submitting to imperfect agents as imperfect agents. In other words, I'm talking about submitting to people that God has put in a headship role. They're just agents too, but submitting to imperfect agents as imperfect agents. If we assume that the Holy Spirit actually means what He says in His Word, then the first two verses of Romans 13 will come as a very rude awakening to a great many Christians. In that passage, Paul says, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For Listen to this. For there is no authority except from God. Okay, so how many earthly authorities are not from God? And those, comma, and those which exist are established by God. So he says it two different ways. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. So what is it when you resist authority? What does God call that? Sin. 
And he says, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. So wait, wait a minute here. I must be reading this wrong. Let me read it again. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist, all of them, are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. That can't be right, can it? What about authorities that lead badly? Surely he doesn't mean those. Worse, what about authorities that are unjust? What about authorities that are downright tyrannical? Surely, God, you're not telling me that I still have to submit to those authorities, are you? A little historical context for the passage here is very eye-opening. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, in which those verses are found, it was very likely during the early part of the reign of a Roman emperor named Nero. Ever heard that name before? Within no more than a few years after Paul wrote these words, Nero's hatred of everything associated with Christ and Christians reached the point that he was using Christians as human torches to light the streets of Rome at night. He was filling amphitheaters with spectators eager to watch him feed Christians to lions. Nero is almost certainly the emperor who personally ordered the beheading of the Apostle Paul who wrote these words. He was a Roman citizen. He had to be condemned by Caesar if he was condemned to death. And he was almost certainly the the emperor who was in authority when Peter was executed. But Paul, and, and many other, many other Christians, but Paul clearly told believers that Nero's authority was from God and that to resist that authority rather than humbly submitting to it would be to resist the ordinance of God. And I'll say it again, guys, in case, in case you missed it, if you're resisting the ordinance of God, that means you're sinning. You might be thinking, yeah, but even the Bible places limits on our submission to governing authorities. We must never obey someone who tells us to do something that God calls sin, right? That's entirely right. Biblical examples of men who legitimately refused to obey earthly authorities in specific cases include Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Paul, Peter, James, John, and others. But every biblical example of God-ordained resistance to earthly authorities makes it crystal clear that the only time that God intends for His people not to submit to the authorities that He places over us on earth is when those authorities do one of two things. One of two things. Either they command us to do what God has forbidden or they forbid us to do what God has commanded. That's it. No other exceptions. We do not get to resist or dishonor those authorities because they do unjust things. And you heard me right. We do not, do not get to resist or dishonor those authorities because they do unjust things. I'm not making this stuff up, guys. Nebuchadnezzar was a merciless tyrant who ordered the execution of all the wise men in his land because none of them could tell him what he dreamed at night. 
None except one. But the four young Hebrew men in the early chapters of the book of Daniel all submitted to and honored Nebuchadnezzar except when he demanded that they personally sin against God. In Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was thrown into a pit full of lions to be torn to shreds because he would not obey, he staunchly refused to obey King Darius's edict that nobody could pray to anyone but him, the king. On the morning after Daniel was tossed into that pit, King Darius, who actually liked Daniel, came to the opening of the pit and had the, had the, whatever was covering it pulled away. And he kind of sheepishly approached him. Before he even looked down into the pit, he said, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly served, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then he heard a voice. And Daniel said, listen to the first words of Daniel. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also before you, O king. I have committed no crime. The words, O king, live forever, were a traditional statement of honor in the ancient Near East for a sovereign king. Daniel honored the man who would have been the cause of his unjust death were it not for the sovereignty of God over every human authority. Were it not for the absolute sovereignty of God over every human authority. Is that how you and I would address a ruler over us? If that ruler treated Christians the way Darius treated Daniel? Or would we instead publicly demonize that ruler on Facebook the way so many Christians zealously do whenever someone in authority does something that messes with our perceived rights? You've heard this from me before. You tell me if you can find anything in Scripture that contradicts it. Yours and my one inalienable God-given right is to go to hell. All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages, what we have earned by that sin, is eternal death. That's our right. That's our right. I know this is a good way to get run out of a lot of churches. But I also know that, that you guys, the people that I know in this body, desire to know what God has to say, and to order your lives according to it. And so I'm, I'm not pulling any punches here because this is what is set before us. First Peter 2 commands believing slaves to submit to their masters even when their masters cause them unjust suffering. Chapter 3 commands believing wives to submit to their husbands even when their husbands are disobedient to the Word of God. And they are the ones who have to suffer for that. So what does all this have to do, all that stuff in the Bible have to do with you and me today? And what does it have to do with the whole discussion of human agency? And the answer is everything. If this shoe fits, we need to wear it. God is talking to us. The attitude that I'm hearing from far too many believers goes something like this. Okay, if God says that I have to submit to a crummy president 
or a racist policeman or an unloving, self-absorbed husband or to a group of incompetent elders, I will submit, but only as much as it takes to not bring more suffering down on my head. And there will certainly be no joy in that submission. You ever heard anybody who seems to be saying that? Beloved, I can say to you on the authority of God's Word that that is not godly submission. That's sin. It is sin if we malign the authorities that God has placed over us as if we are somehow morally superior to them. When in fact, we are as worthy of condemnation as they are. Whatever it is that you despise about somebody who is in authority and is causing your suffering you need to give some serious thought to what other people would suffer if you were in their place of authority. Because you are a sinner saved by only by the grace of God and you and I cause unjust harm to other people on a very frequent basis in many different ways. Whoever is in office right now, and, and, and by the way, the more power we have, the more harm we cause. Whoever is in office right now and whoever gets elected in November... Beloved, godly submission by God's people means that we will humbly pray for those in authority as we willingly and joyfully submit to their authority over us from the heart. Not as men-pleasers, not as men-pleasers, but as a continual act of submission to Christ Himself. You remember what we said a couple of weeks ago? God does not call us to submit to agents as an endpoint, to His agents. He calls us to submit to Him through His agents. To His work through His agents. And that submission is to come from hearts that are filled with peace and contentedness. Imagine, brothers and sisters, imagine what it would do to our testimony in the world if people looked at us And no matter who was in authority over us, they saw joy. They saw peace. They saw contentedness. They saw that our living hope is what drives us and and that we know that our well-being is not touched. What would our testimony as the community of God be like if that's the way we responded? And yes, I'm talking to myself here. I'm not, I'm not saying this as if I, if, as if I do this right all the time. Goodness, no. But this is the bedrock of, of godly submission right here. No agent, no instrument of God's activity on earth can ever rob his child of well-being. Ever. No agent, no instrument of God on earth can ever rob his child of well-being ever because there's only one source of well-being. There's lots of instruments and God is sovereign over all of them and the only source of well-being is God. The only source of well-being or calamity, of blessing or curse is the one true living God. And for us who belong to Him by His grace, we are guaranteed an eternity a blessed relationship with Him. And no mere mortal will ever be more than a mere agent in the hands of the only sovereign God. I'll say that again too. No mere mortal will ever be more than a mere agent 
in the hands of our sovereign God. In our young adults Bible discussion, we just finished the book of Genesis, and the punchline of that great book is in chapter 45 and chapter 50. <laughs> what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Again, I mean, this is stunning, guys. This is, this is upside down turned right side up. It's completely diametrically the opposite of our inclination for how we, what we think is going on when bad things happen. And, and let me also be clear. This, none of this is saying, and I'm certainly not saying that God makes bad things good things. Sin is sin. Death is part of the curse, and the curse is a bad thing that God imposed on mankind because of our sin. But what God says He does is He overwhelms and overcomes all of that bad, and He He causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. How many things? All things. It's either all things or it's not. What freed Joseph up to treat his brothers well after the horrifying betrayal that they had had perpetrated against him when he was a boy was very, very simple. Joseph got the critical distinction between agents of his well-being and the source of his well-being. I'm guilty here, as many of you are, but the plea, everybody's doing it. If that doesn't work with your mom, it's not going to work with God. Every agent that God uses to exercise his headship, God's uh, headship over us during our time here on earth will be a woefully imperfect agent, right? Just like we are woefully imperfect agents. Even if that agent is a redeemed child of God. You're never going to find cause for submission in the agent. Your cause for submission is in the source. The one who's sovereign over the agent. You get it? I mean, I know I'm not trying to be at all condescending here, but this is, we act as if we don't get this so often. I act as if I don't get this. And it's just dirt simple. Don't treat the agent, the instrument of God, as if he's the one who controls anything or she. Because they don't. They don't. They never will. If your submission and service to God has to be on your terms, you are violating the will of God. Some Christians seem to be convinced that they have the spiritual gift of nagging. Uh, I think this shows up a little more in marriages and in the church than it does in the workplace because most of us actually want to keep our jobs. But nagging has no place in godly submission. Make your case and trust God. All right, I've spent a lot of time on the matter of submitting as imperfect agents to the God-ordained authority of imperfect agents, which is actually submitting to God, not to men. Now let's spend a little bit of time on the matter of leading as imperfect agents. How are you and I supposed to carry out the assignment of headship if God hands us that assignment in some role? Well, the first thing to know is that agents are dispensable. God doesn't need us. That's really important. Bob reminded me on Wednesday that the prophet Elijah got to spend a good portion of his ministry being followed around by the man that God had appointed to be his successor, Elisha. When God took Elijah, I mean took him, (laughs) up to heaven, 
Elijah's literal mantle passed in that very moment to Elisha. No ceremony, no ramp-up period. Just God saying to Elisha, in effect, okay, I used him, now I'm going to use you. And God's agenda didn't miss a beat. Elisha picked up right where Elijah left off, dealing with the same people and the same issues for the same God. The child of God who really embraces God's design for human agency actually finds this delightful. Freeing. It is amazingly, it's amazingly freeing to know that other people's well-being and the advancement of God's kingdom on earth do not depend on you. Ronald Reagan had a saying that he inherited from someone else. He said, it's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets credit for it. I would qualify that a little. I'd change it. I'd say it's amazing what God will accomplish through you if you only care that he gets credit for it. You and I have the marvelous and entirely unmerited privilege of being used by God as he accomplishes his work, his way, in his creation through the miserable likes of us. But the key word there is used. Our master has millions of agents. He doesn't need you or me. Now that, of course, does not in any way exempt us from accountability to God, to be wise, willing, faithful agents. But there is a vast difference between being accountable and being determinative. A better and more on-point word for determinative there is the tried-and-true biblical word sovereign. You and I are accountable to God for every thought, word, and deed. We are sovereign over absolutely nothing. It's a great verse in Galatians 1, verse 3, and it's a passage that's talking actually about, about uh, you know, submission. It says, if anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. That's a, that's a good verse. When, when anyone thinks he is something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. When it comes to sovereignty, beloved, you and I are nothing. We're sovereign over nothing. God's sovereign over everything, and, and that is supposed to be liberating. It's supposed to be a delight to us. It's hard for us rugged, western rugged individualists to buy into that sometimes, but, but we are utterly dependent. Nobody's well-being is determined by the miserable likes of me or by the just as miserable likes of you. And I love you all. And that means that the advancement of God's kingdom on earth and in heaven will proceed just as certainly with or without me. I want to bring this home for the last few minutes to the context of submission and headship within the church, especially the local church, the local body, body like CBC. And my subtitle here is God's, God's Very Inefficient, Highly Effective Model for Church Leadership. Appointing a group of sheep to care for a flock of sheep might not strike us as a very good strategy. But that's exactly how Jesus shepherds his flock. It's God's idea. It's not our idea. It's not a CEO management model, and if, if that's the model that you think should be practiced in the local church, you're going to find God's model grossly inefficient. Decisions take longer, sometimes a lot longer. They often require painfully drawn out periods of waiting and praying 
for God to bring about same-mindedness among the elders before action is taken. But God's model of church leadership is marvelously effective if the goal, if the objective is to produce and nurture in all of us true submission to just one chief shepherd. We need to all recognize that God's model for um, for church leadership is not nearly as directive a mode of leadership as some would prefer, some of us. 1 Peter 5, verses 1-5, through 5, Peter says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. And then listen to this part. Not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Remember when Jesus said, the Gentiles lord it over those who are under their authority? He said, Peter says, you elders in the church of God, you are not to lord it over the people of God, but instead prove to be, prove to be examples to the flock. That is inherently less directive than what some people call leadership. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you are convinced that your ideas about how to manage God's flock are the best ideas and that this church or any other local church would be better served if your ideas were implemented, you're not ready to be an elder. Because that's not how God uses agents to shepherd His flock. If there's one thing that I have learned to expect with absolute consistency when I walk into an elders meeting... It's that the way I would have chosen to handle any situation or ministry that affects this body, before we as elders took the time to to talk about it and to pray about it, never ends up being the best way. Never. What I come into the room with never ends up being the best answer to what's needed by this body. And if you think I don't believe that, Let me tell you, I absolutely do. When I come into every elders meeting, I know without any doubt at all, I will not walk away with, uh, without having whatever understanding I came in the door with significantly changed by God through the agency of all eight of those other beloved brothers. Always happens. Even on the rare occasion, it's rare, when my best understanding about how to proceed on a given issue ends up as the consensus of the elders, that, that understanding always, always gets adjusted and improved in some very significant way by God's work through my fellow elders. Always. If the elders ever said to me that CBC was switching to a senior pastor model and that I would ha- now have the final say on every major decision going forward, Beloved, that would be the day that I handed in my resignation because that's not how Christ leads His church. I know that's not going to happen too because I know this 
and I know the elders, and I'm glad for that. That is not how the only chief shepherd of God's flock leads his flock. Now, I don't care for the title senior pastor because in that word, the word the senior doesn't mean old, it means chief or head. And the word pastor means shepherd. And the entire worldwide church of Jesus Christ has one chief shepherd. I don't want his title. But the title senior pastor is in the final analysis just a title. So I also don't want to make a bigger deal out of the words than I need to. I have dear friends. I meet with a group of, of pastors in Dallas and, and pray with them on a regular basis. And I have dear friends who are called senior pastors. But the leadership in their churches is plural, not singular. The leadership in their churches comes about when they meet together with other men whose walk with God has been tested and God uses He uses the agency of that group together to come up with the decisions that affect the church. I don't care what you call it. I'm not saying that only churches that practice our exact paradigm for church governance are doing this right before God, but I am saying that we have to do church governance right. We have to do it God's way. And in order to do so, it is imperative that each of us who serves as an elder agrees with God that we are never more than instruments, agents of his work in his church. I told you this before, but i got to tell you again. A pastor friend of mine in San Antonio went to this gathering. Of, it was a luncheon with a bunch of pastors, and there was a pastor there sitting right beside him who was, he had a church, it was a mega church, thousands and thousands of people. He gets, he gets posted all over the world on TV. And this guy, this pastor leans over to, to the pastor of my church, and he says, you run a tight ship at your church? I run a tight ship at mine. And my pastor friend leaned over to him and said, it's not my church. (laughs) (laughs) The goal of every believer in all our interactions with other believers is to exalt Christ and to build up his church. It is never to exalt ourselves. And when it becomes that, God has to deal with us. Making disciples is about modeling and nurturing humble servanthood in God's people by being humble servants ourselves. We don't need leadership training, beloved. We need servanthood training. And the way an agent of God trains others to be servants is first and foremost by being a servant. Let's do this God's way, not man's way. Beloved Father, When each of us who has been bought by you, have bought for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, breathes our last breath on this earth, let us be remembered on this earth as willing agents of God and willing servants of God and men. Until that final breath, Father, teach us to delight in no other station among men than that. We ask this in the precious name and for the glory of the servant of all, our sacrifice, our Savior, our eternal King, Jesus. Amen.